Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 157 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Anne Cushman. Anne is, gosh, she preceded me at Yoga Journal, so we never crossed paths directly, but I feel like I spent the first two to three years there reading all of her amazing work and learning from her in that way. She doesn't even know that. But it was really a delight to have her on the show. She has written a new memoir called The Mama Sutra. And it is one of my favorite things I've read in so very long. Anne is a yoga teacher. She's a meditation teacher. She directs the mentoring component of the Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California. And her writing is exquisite and real and insightful. And in speaking to her in this interview, she was also so insightful. I think this is one of the only interviews where I kind of ramble on a bit, probably just out of my excitement (laughs) to talk to her. So enjoy the interview with Anne. Well, Anne, I'm I'm so happy that you're here to talk to us today. I have already gushed to you about your book, but it truly is the best thing I've read all year. I just tore through it. And I think for anyone, whether you're a mom or not, who has just taken part in the yogic and Buddhist spiritual experience, it's just really resonant. It's a really lovely book. So thanks for being here. Mm, thank you so much for saying that, Andrea. <laughs> and I thought it would be really fun to talk through some of the many themes that you touch on in the book. And, you know, you managed to eloquently talk throughout the book about how you've utilized your yoga and meditation practice throughout your mothering and how it truly came to life in the process of mothering. And one of the things you talk about really early on in the book is how the yogic and Buddhist spiritual texts, and correct me if I'm getting anything wrong, but how they're really has never been much attention paid to mothering as an act of spiritual practice or or even spiritual adeptness. So I just wanted to start there and see what comes to mind for you in thinking about that again. Yes, that's a great place to start. And really when I began working on this book, it was when I first got pregnant, and I had been a practitioner of yoga and meditation for many, many years. And I was also a writer. I'd been writing and editing for Yoga Jar time. And I had just finished a book called From Here to Nirvana, which was a guide to spiritual centers in India. And I so I had traveled book, all over way. India. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I traveled all over India and explored lots of different variations of the yoga and meditation paths. And so it really struck me that this journey that I was about to embark on of motherhood was a kind of pilgrimage mm-hmm. and that it was also a kind of yoga. It was a spiritual practice. And I had that idea going into it. And I was really interested in exploring it from that light, because as you mentioned, I really hadn't seen that done in the classic teachings of yoga and meditation. Mm -hmm. The spiritual traditions had been transmitted over centuries until quite recently, primarily by men. And not only that, but primarily by celibate men, 
<laughs> and so it really seemed that there was this whole realm of human experience and specifically women's experience that had been left out of the yoga and meditation canon. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to write about this experience of becoming a mother and being a mother as an elevated form of spiritual practice. I wanted to really hold it in that light. Now, of course, I had all kinds of ideas about how that would look. And they we were... We all do. <laughs> I, exactly. And as is often the case when you embark on anything, any kind of practice, a lot of that turned out to be delusion, right? It's like going on a meditation retreat and you have all these ideas about how blissful it will be. And then reality hits. Mm -hmm. Reality in the form of your heart and your mind. So that was very much the case with this journey. Uh, it was also analogous to traveling in India in that respect, that you have all these plans and you've read the guidebook and you have this idea of how it's going to be. And then you get there and completely different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was my experience for sure working on this book. And one of the manifestations of that is the fact that a book that I thought would take a couple of years to write really unfolded over the entire trajectory of my child growing up. So he went off to college. My son went off to college about the time that I sent the manuscript off to the public. So I appreciate that you mention it in the book, too, that it took years for you to write this book. And, and just as a part-time working mom slash writer content person trying to juggle everything, it was very encouraging for me to read that, that some of these essays came from early journals and you developed them over many years. Yes. Well, the creative process has its own timeline and its own life. It's kind of like a child in that way. And I think especially from my yoga practice and my meditation practice, I had really learned to trust the unfolding and to trust that things open at their own pace. And this was a story that I picked up and I put down and I worked on other things. I published a couple of other books while I was still working on this one. And it really just had its own creative arc. And because the story I thought I was going to tell kept changing, I kept having to revise my approach and listen a little differently and write a little differently. And did it keep changing just simply because life keeps changing and your son kept changing? Yes. Well, as I went into this project, as I think I mentioned, I had the sense that I kind of knew how the story was going to go. <laughs> and life kept giving me new plot twists and I would have to integrate each one of them and make sense of it and digest it. And that was just an ongoing process that kept changing the trajectory of the book that I thought I was going to write. Yeah, it makes sense. How does your son feel about the book? Has he read it? I gave him in advance all of the parts that had him as a central character, mm -hmm. which, of course, most of them, and had him approve them. And he loves it. Yeah. He's great. He's very happy about it. And in fact, he just yesterday told me a story he is a camp counselor at a science and arts camp for K-5 kids in a nearby town. And one of the kids came up to him and said, my dad is a student of your mom's. And he said to tell you that 
he bought the book and he's really liking it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, the mom of that kid came to pick up the child. And so my son went up and said, oh, I hear you are enjoying my mom's book. And she looked up at him and said, oh, you're Forrest? Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> it was a little moment. Of course, I changed his name mm-hmm. in the book. So he laughed and he gave her his actual name. But it was a really sweet moment of recognition of him outside the context of the book. He must have felt like a little celebrity for a moment. <laughs> he did. Yeah. Yeah. He did. And it was important to me to change his name just to give him some layer of privacy. Yeah, I thought I thought that was really, really wise. I want to switch gears for just a moment and go back to this point that you make in various ways throughout the book about motherhood being such an important spiritual practice. And I think that I just I hear the refrain really often with Jason's and my own students that parenting changes your practice so much. And there's a lot of guilt associated with that, I think, and just not doing as much, not meditating as regularly as they feel like they quote unquote should be or feeling like their practice is like dying. <laughs> and um, I always try to reassure people that that is absolutely not the case. But you say something, I'm going to read another passage because you say it really well. You say, motherhood practice is not based on control or keeping things tidy. It makes room in its heart for an electric train or a preteen slumber party in the middle of the living room floor. It doesn't slip away in the middle of the night to search for enlightenment. It stays home. And this was in reference to, you kind of did a rewriting of the the birth of Siddhartha, which we'll get to. That's what this passage was in reference to. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this whole idea of practice as a parent. I think we're very conditioned as practitioners, as women practitioners, as mothers who practice, to think that because we're not spending as many hours on the yoga mat or on the meditation cushion as we did before we had children, that we actually aren't practicing. And I think that's actually just a legacy or reflection of this fact that a lot of these traditions have been passed down in this monastic way, that actually we need, we really should value a broadened definition of practice as mothers, which includes the messiness and the complexities of our life, and a definition of practice that really opens us to all of the activities that we're doing throughout the day. And in a sense, you could say any human activity that we approach consciously with the intention of being present and being compassionate and paying attention can be a path of practice. But I would say that motherhood in particular is suited to this because just like meditation practice, just like yoga practice, motherhood brings us into a very direct and visceral connection with all of the most mysterious aspects of human life. (laughs) So birth, death, love, loss, impermanence, interconnectedness, the human identity and transformation, all of this we really are connected with as parents. And so motherhood will also call forth our capacity to put another human being first, right? To put their needs and wishes and dreams ahead of our own. 
And it also will cultivate our ability to understand someone who may be really, really different from us. Mm -hmm. We have these ideas that our child will just be a sort of mini me. And most of us have the shocking discovery that that's not the case. So in all of these ways, I would say that motherhood puts us at our edge, both physically and emotionally. And it's a tremendous opportunity for opening the heart and cultivating the ability to really listen deeply to the mysteries of our lives and to to really inquire into our own unconscious patterns and deep conditioning that may be keeping us from being fully present to that. Mm-hmm. I definitely resonate with this, what you just said about we kind of assume that it's so hilariously narcissistic that our children are going to be our little mini-me's and and they're just not like they're just their own little spirits and beings with their own karmas and and strengths and issues and yeah you develop so much i mean for me i think i've developed so much more compassion just for myself in the process of mothering because if i didn't I think I would feel bereft at, you know, the failings that happen on a daily basis on my own. You know what I mean? It's like you just kind of have to be able to hold yourself with as much love as you do your child. Exactly. And I think that can be very hard for us as mothers and as spiritual practitioners, right? We have these lofty ideals. And what sometimes can happen if you are a practitioner of yoga and meditation is you lay all of those ideals on top of the ideals you already have about motherhood, right? Mm -hmm. So that you not only have to mother perfectly and make the perfect homemade baby food and send your kid off to preschool with the home-baked bread for the sandwich And also be doing your job in a perfectly professional way. And also on top of that, because you're a yoga and meditation practitioner, you're supposed to be being very mindful and smiling all the way through this. Never lose your temper. Never, yeah. Never lose your temper, never get depressed, never get anxious, never have your back go out because you're a yoga practitioner. Mm -hmm. To have this perfect home birth and nothing's going to go wrong. We really layer, we can layer a kind of spiritual perfectionism over what's already a really challenging job. Mm. So I think exactly what you're pointing to, to learning to give yourself some space and make room for the imperfection. And that's one of the things I really wanted the book to to reflect. I really wanted it to include all of the messy moments that as a meditation and yoga practitioner, and especially as a meditation and yoga teacher, I might be tempted to hide. Mm, Yeah, you did that so well. It brings me to another theme that I wanted to talk about, because I think it's really, we have a lot of teachers who, yoga teachers who listen to the podcast, and I think it's very common to feel when you're going through your own hard time, and then you're trying to show up for a class and extol, you know, the these spiritual virtues that there can be this feeling of like, I'm a fraud, you know, if you're going through your own hard time. And you were open about that in the book about, I believe it was like when you started to go through your divorce and then you were leading meditation group weekly, or maybe it was a yoga class. Anyway, I, I'm going to let you talk about it. If you could just talk about how you coped with 
feeling that way in the midst of going through something really hard yourself and having to keep teaching on holding the space for others? Well, I think something that's true for me and for many of the yoga and meditation practitioners and teachers, especially that I've spoken with, is that we teach what we need to learn and teaching is a practice in itself. And so the fact that we're teaching something doesn't mean that we've perfected it Mm -hmm. in our life. It means that we're practicing it and we're practicing it with the fullness of our heart and the fullness of our intentions. And part of practice is, is this process of falling away and coming back. And so in the essay that you're speaking of, which was about going through a divorce while parenting a toddler, uh, which, as you can imagine, was a double whammy of a mm-hmm. difficult time in life. I was also teaching a class series on loving kindness at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, a yoga and meditation class where we were focusing on loving kindness practice. And I had this moment where... Uh, one of my own teachers had said to me, well, one of the things about loving kindness practice is that it often brings up the opposite. And I wrote in my journal, great news, it seems to be working. (laughs) Because of course, I was going through this time where I was not always feeling like I was radiating loving kindness. I was having big arguments with my soon-to-be ex- husband. I was parenting a toddler who was not sleeping through the night. In a lot of ways, everything was falling apart. And yet, teaching kept reminding me of the practice, kept returning me to the practice. And that was tremendously helpful throughout this time, even though there were these awful moments where I felt exactly as you were saying, that here I am a complete fake. I'm teaching something which I am not perfectly living by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is a, a, the best way to think about it. It's like, I mean, it's, the podcast is the same for me. Doing these practices or talking about them, it just brings us back into alignment with kind of, it just helps us to remember. I think that all the time. My practice just helps me to remember. And I mean remember in this kind of like very organic spiritual way. It helps me remember my humanness. It helps me remember connection. It helps me remember that I, I'm i not just all of the trappings of my feelings and my thoughts and my running from this place to that place just helps me to remember and kind of ground. Exactly. And it puts us in touch with the wisest and most compassionate part of ourselves. And then as teachers, we can speak from that place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and do ourselves from that place. Yeah, yeah. I um, I thought it was really lovely that you you were very straightforward and honest about how difficult it was going through the divorce and the and you know the the challenges of that relationship with your son's father, and then that but that years later you really did get to a place where it's it's a great relationship. And I can't remember if this is the part where Forrest talks about time, how time runs in two directions. Mm-hmm. So, so you say to your future self, it's all gonna it's all okay. But that was such a beautiful line and so nice that you wrote it down that your son talked about that. Yes, he said, and this was much later when he was probably 11 or 12, I don't remember exactly. 
and he he told me that time runs in two directions and so if you go through a difficult time when it's over you should send a message to your former self and tell them that everything's going to work out all right and that then if you do that consistently every time you're going through a difficult time you can tune into your future self and pick up that message from them so <laughs> I thought that was wonderful. And yes, it was, he said that long after the divorce. And as you allude to, his father and I have a great relationship. His father is a fantastic dad, and we've been wonderful co parents all along. Really, even during the difficult moments, one of the things we really were determined was that our separation would not impact our love for our son and our ability to co-parent him and his sense that he had two parents who loved each other. Mm -hmm. So that was something, that was an aspiration we held throughout and have really, has been kind of a North Star that's been guiding us. Mm -hmm. and, and yes, we're at this point very good friends. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Forrest, that little line that he said I mean it's sort of like one of those from the mouth of babes moments it's just like whoa kids kind of do that often but do you feel like he has sort of integrated your spiritual practices into the way that he lives or did he say that more for in a just like a matter-of-fact scientific way well I think he was saying that from the perspective of science mm -hmm. which is big interests. And he was just thinking of it, I think, as applied science. I don't know that he would mm -hmm. have said it was a spiritual thing, although, of course, I heard it that way. As a practitioner myself, yoga and meditation was kind of the environment that he lived in. And as he was growing up from about age six to age 13, I took him every year to the family retreat at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And so he was exposed to the formal practices and those ways. He's not currently a meditator in the formal sense, and he does not do yoga, but he has done martial arts mm. since he was five. And that was a mind-body discipline that was tremendously helpful to him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so many similarities. My husband does martial arts too these days. He just started doing them as an adult. And he always talks about how the kids could kick his butt if, <laughs> if they wanted to. I wanted to just go back to how you retell the story of the birth of Siddhartha, who, you know, became the Buddha, and how brilliant I thought that was. And I'm wondering if you could just talk us through that, you know, what the story is, and then kind of how you reimagine it. So that's one of my favorite chapters in the book. And I actually think it's one of the most radical chapters in the book. Mm-hmm. Because the story of the birth of the Buddha, as it's classically told, really seems to me to be a perfect example of a myth that was created by and passed down by monastic men. In the traditional story, 
the way it works is like this. Queen Maya and her husband are childless for many years. Queen Maya eventually has a dream about a white elephant, which is very auspicious. The elephant circles around her three times, enters through her right side, and then 10 months later, she's on her way home to her mother's house to give birth. When she stops for a little rest under a tree, she holds onto a tree branch, and then the baby emerges painlessly and bloodlessly out of her right side again. The baby takes three steps forward, holds up his hand, and proclaims, I am the world-honored one. <laughs> and at that point, her job is done, and Queen Maya dies a few days later, and the young prince who is going to become the Buddha is raised by his maternal aunt. So no mess, no blood. Painlessly and bloodlessly. Yes, yeah. no male body parts, all very tidy. Uh-huh. And so I retell the story from Queen Maya's point of view. And in my retelling, Queen Maya struggles to get pregnant, first of all. She has miscarriages. She has a stillbirth. And she eventually has an affair with her charioteer, which is what finally gets her pregnant. And then on the way home to see her mother, she's delayed by weather. The wheel falls off her ox cart. The baby is born breech. Mm. The charioteer who's driving her runs away. And her sister has to deliver the baby um, via an emergency C-section, which is why the baby comes out very bloodily out the, the side. And at that point, Queen Maya really gives up her life in order to save her child. And I really told to re-envision, I chose to re-envision the myth in this way because it's a very human retelling, because it's truer to the messy, raw details of the human life. And I'm not, of course, saying that this is how it actually happened. It's a myth. We don't know how it actually happened. But what this myth says, the retelling says, is that from loss and mistakes and imperfection and betrayal from that whole kind of messy soup of our human lives, awakening can be born. Something really beautiful can be born. And that, in fact, that's how it has to be born. One of the images in the classic texts is that the lotus, the beautiful lotus flower, blooms from the mud. Mm. And without the mud, we really can't wake up. And I think that also is one of the themes of the book in general. It's that our sorrows, our losses, if we turn toward them, can really open us into the heart of compassion and and keep us connected with other human beings. Mm. Where if our lives are too perfect and everything goes right, we don't have a way of, of learning that kind of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also think like something that came to mind to you as you were just saying that is it's just so interesting that that the original telling of the story is this kind of glossy, beautiful, clean and tidy myth because it actually reminds me, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, of sort of the the myths that permeate wellness culture these days. Like if you, you know, drink apple cider vinegar and you do this, this and this, you'll lose 15 pounds by this summer and you'll feel stronger and healthier. And this is like this whole glossy myth that ultimately makes people feel terrible about the chaos of their own lives. When I read your telling, when it gets, you kind of weave it throughout, which is really cool. And when I, when I read sort of the final part, as a mother, it reminds you of your actual birth and it feels really beautiful and it feels 
really liberating to read it in that way. I mean, I just, I really appreciated it. And it was very creative, too. And of course, I intercut, as you know, I intercut that story, that retelling of the myth of the Buddha's birth with the story of my own labor and delivery of my son. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which was, I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, it was kind of stalled for a while, right? Because you were fearful. And you talk about how you kind of had to let go to let him come out. Yes. And of course, that there was another whole layer to the birth of my son, because as the story of the Mama Sutra begins, the first couple of chapters are about the stillbirth of my daughter. And that is one of the ways that my story did not go as I had planned and hoped. So what I talk about in the book, I tell the story of my first very joyful and wonderful pregnancy, which ended in tragedy just a couple of days before my daughter's due date with a full-term stillbirth. And it was a tragedy, of course, and a great loss and, and a profound spiritual passage for me. And so when I became pregnant again with my son, it was a very conscious stepping into the possibility of loss, which now was very real. Mm -hmm. And really knowing that part of being a mother is to love with all your heart in a impermanent world where we don't have control over what happens and where those who we love the most are vulnerable. Mm. And so how do we live with that as human beings? It's a very profound human question. How do we continue to open our hearts? How do we love? How do we move through the world with an open heart, given this great truth of impermanence? How did you lean on your own faith and practices to get you through that? Well, first of all, I had to really come to terms with the fact that I had a little bit of magical thinking going on around my practice, which I had been unconscious of. I, of course, I knew that this, I knew intellectually this wasn't true, but on some level, I thought that because I was a practitioner, I would somehow be protected from these possibilities. Mm. And of course, because I was a meditator and a yoga practitioner and I ate a healthy diet, that nothing would go wrong and that somehow I had a magic amulet in my practice. And what I discovered is that it was not a magic shield from all harm. But what it was, was a way for me to turn toward rather than turning away what was happening, which I think is something that our yoga practice, our meditation practice teaches us to, again, teaches us to do again and again, Mm -hmm. is turn toward. And that it really teaches that when great losses happen, we have a choice about how we're going to respond. And we can respond by hardening and shutting down and retreating from the world. Or we can respond by letting that tremendous pain increase our sense of compassion and connection to life. And that our practice can help us turn in that direction, in Mm -hmm. the direction of connection and compassion for ourselves and others, rather than 
toward numbing out and shutting down and becoming cynical and becoming afraid of love. Yeah. And by turning toward, you can actually move through, like you can move to the next phase. And that's not to say, obviously, that you got pregnant with your son fairly quickly after you lost your daughter, which was a surprise for you. And you struggled throughout that pregnancy. Like I, I love when you talked about how at the end you were drinking orange juice to feel him kick like late at night or in the middle of the night. I just know so many people can relate to that. So yeah, you're honest about the fact that it doesn't mean that you turn toward it and, oh, you've got it all mastered and you're you're fine. You're spiritually strong. You know, you still feel all the feelings, but you just can keep moving forward in a healthy way. Yeah. And again, it's a practice. It's it's a practice and it's something we do imperfectly and it comes in waves. And I think any mother who has lost a child knows that one child can't replace another. Mm. And you continue to grieve the one or ones who are gone, even as you open to the ones who live. And that's just the reality of love. And there continues to be a place in your heart always for a child who has not lived. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Yeah. I have one more thought slash question that I want to talk through. And I, I actually don't have it fully formulated to be perfectly honest in my head, but I just want to talk about, you discovered, I can't remember his age, but when Forrest is preschool age, that he is what we call these days a neurodiverse child. I think it was a sister-in-law who pointed out that he might need to be tested and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, I just want to talk about, first of all, how great I think it is that you and he were willing to talk about it really openly because I think it still can be stigmatized for a lot of people. And I also just love how you approach once you got a, a specific diagnosis, you talk about how you approach that by just you and your ex-husband just looking at him and looking at the child and trying to figure out what he needed rather than thinking about the diagnosis. And so I'm I'm just wondering if you can talk about that a little bit and just how you utilized your practice and your background to really trust the situation as he developed. Yes. So as I discuss in the book, when my son was three, he was given the diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, which is a previously used diagnosis, which is now part of the umbrella diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And then about four years later, after extensive intervention, the same psychologist came back and reevaluated him. And she said, oh, no, he's outgrown his diagnosis He's not on the autistic spectrum anymore. Now I think he's highly gifted. Mm -hmm. And another situation that needs particular interventions and, and conditions in order to thrive. And so what I talk about in the book is really the journey between those two different but related diagnoses and how I really navigated that as a mother and also especially how I drew on what I had learned from yoga and meditation to really help navigate the terrain mm -hmm. and really what I learned not just about my son but about myself as I moved through it. 
and I also really want to say that I'm in no way an expert on autism spectrum disorder. So I'm really just speaking experientially from my own journey here. So what I really was inspired by and really drew on again and again from my practice of yoga and meditation is the teaching that what we think of as a solid self is not solid. It's not fixed. It is fluid. It is impermanent. It is interconnected with so many non-self elements and influences, including the people around us and how we spend our time and what we eat and what we think about and how we use our bodies. And so from yoga, I also knew that we're all this complex bundle of strengths and weaknesses and that our strengths and our weaknesses are often really intimately related, right? And you can think about probably a dozen places in your own yoga practice where something can be a gift in one situation and a liability in another, mm-hmm. even something as simple as hyperflexibility, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You can do these great backbends and your joints may be unstable. So I really thought about that and how in any kind of pose, you want to minimize the negative aspects of a particular characteristic and support the positive ones. So what I really decided and what my son's dad and I really talked about was we weren't going to put our son in a box based on a diagnosis. Instead, we were going to look at the particular characteristics that the diagnosis was pointing toward and look at ways that we could really support him to be the absolute best version of himself that he could be. And for him, that meant sensory integration training. We discovered that he had super sensitive hearing and tactile responses, which on the one hand, yes, a a real gift as a musician. He's now a songwriter and, and plays guitar, but a real liability when you're two years old and you're going to a birthday party full of screaming two-year-olds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, he had a very keen intellect, but he had difficulty reading people. So how could we maximize the benefits of his intellect while really building up his devel- his ability to understand and connect with, in particular, kids his own age? And so we really looked at it in that way. And Along the way, I really found that many of the interventions that we were offering to our son were things that either I wished that I had been given myself or that I had in some way given myself, interestingly, through my yoga practice, my meditation practice, that whole aspect of coming into the body, which was so important. Um, One of the early uh, occupational therapists we took our son to had him draw a self-portrait. And the therapist went to us and said, look, he drew himself with four brains and a tiny little body. Oh, sweetheart. I yeah. started doing yoga, right? Mm-hmm. I would, I had, I was a writer and, and a kind of a geek and came to yoga practice in my early 20s and really had to embody, re-embody myself. So that's really how we approached that journey. And... Uh, it was quite a wonderful journey of, of self-discovery for yeah, me, yeah. Well, as, as well as really learning to honor this little being who was in front of me and really look at what he needed to support him and not what other people's ideas were about him. Mm-hmm. Well, he just sounds like such a lovely little soul. I just love learning about kids and they really teach us so much. I my daughter's about to be seven in a couple weeks, and so I've been reflecting a bit on like seven feels just like wow. I've been 
been a mother for seven years and I'm still feeling kind of new to this. But then on the other hand, there, you know, there's things I can reflect on. And it's amazing how, you know, she has really taught me because she has like some of her own issues and needs. And she has really taught me that I don't have to always follow the rules because she's not always going to act exactly as expected or exactly as every other child, you know, in her class or in her age group acts. And that's okay. And, you know, I mean, I have to make sure that I guess what I most want to reflect as a mother is that I am okay with who she is, you know? So for me, that means not always being exactly tidily within, you know, the rules and regulations and norms. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's amazing how much they teach us and it's amazing how much came through your book, Anne. I just loved it so much and, and I appreciate it. And thanks so much for being here. Mm, Thank you. It's really been wonderful discussing this with you. Yeah. I will put a link to Anne's book and to some of her other work on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 157. As always, please share the podcast with those you love and those who you think will enjoy it. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the podcast immensely. And I thank all of you who have written them. I always read them and it gives me a little rush of excitement to know that people are out there listening. All right, guys, until next week, enjoy your practice. Enjoy your practice.